You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be, so uh, it would help you if you had a Bible out in front of you, and you can follow along and, uh, and be right in there with us. Mark chapter 1. And just uh, one, one kind of family sort of business here before we get going, I'll give a couple minutes for the people to, to find a seat here. But uh, we periodically, three or four times a year, do these things called family meetings where we meet together to uh, pray and to uh, make sure that we as a church family are all on the same page. So we try to get you up to date with where we've been in some areas and where we're going in some areas. They're really, really important moments for our church. And so, and like I say, we do these three to four times a year where we'll meet to pray and then go over some, some just things that as a church family we all need to be in the know on. And so this last Wednesday, we had a family meeting, and I want to encourage you on two things with this. Number one, if you're a covenant member of Stonegate, if like this is your church home, that you prioritize being at family meetings. It is very, very important that you're there when we do things like this. Um, we, we threw out some pretty big things for our church family last Wednesday night that you really need to be in the know on. And so, um, so first of all, I just want to ask you to prioritize that. Um, and it will really help the life of our church if you'll do that. And secondly, if you miss the family meeting on Wednesday, um, we're going to post the podcast and the recording of that today. And so you need to make sure this week, like preferably over the next couple of days, that you listen to that podcast. So make sure that if you miss that, you go back this week um, and make sure you're in the know on some of the things that we worked through and discussed. Um, one, I think it would be very encouraging for you. We talked about evidences of grace on um, Wednesday night, the family meeting. And there were some blow-away things that were mentioned as far as how people have seen God at work in our church family over the last year. So I think it will be very encouraging, but also very informative on a couple of things um, that we're in the middle of. So I'm not going to recount all that right now. Go listen to the podcast, and you'll be up to date. So that's family meeting. Um, Okay, so one preface to kind of get us uh, introduced into this text this morning and to kind of get us rolling. Uh, The preface goes like this. I've got a pointless sermon today. Now, now that sounds actually a little bit worse than it is, um, but what, what I'm saying is I don't have like one, two, three, four, five for you today. Um, I, I'm more going after a picture today and an impression upon your soul. That's what we're, that's what we're going for today. I, w- I want to try to give you a picture of two ways that you may be relating to God or people relate to God. And I, I want to try, just ask the Spirit of God to convince you to get to the right picture. Right? So I just want to give you a picture this morning and ask the Spirit of God to use that to give us an impression of how wonderful the gospel is. Okay, so um, that's where we're going. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Let me read this to you again, and then we're going to jump right in. Verse 14 says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, and I just want you to maybe underline this, the gospel Proclaiming the gospel of God, verse 15, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, and here we go again, in the gospel. So let me just start by asking a question this morning. And and this question is a huge question. This question determines a lot about your life and how your life plays out. This is a big one. Okay, here, here comes the question. When you hear this word, what do you think? When you hear this word, what are the thoughts that that immediately kind of trail right in behind it? The word is gospel. When you just heard that word, 
What are the thoughts that are associated with it? Now, I hope things like some sort of a quartet or a choir or some style of music was not your first thought, right? <laughs> that would be really bad. But and here's why it would be bad, because the Bible's, the Bible's description of that word and how the Bible describes and comes around that word is big and it's beautiful. Like, like the picture is huge and robust. I mean, underneath that word is just a wealth of riches in the Bible. This is why Paul in, in Ephesians 3 calls the gospel the unsearchable riches of Christ. Like this word is massive. It's big. It's life-altering. So, so I, I just want to spend a morning making sure that we're thinking big about this, biblically about this, that we have huge, robust thoughts when we think gospel. So when, when you hear the word gospel, I, here, here's one of the things I, I would want you to think first. That the gospel is essentially, at its core, at its essence, good news. This is what the gospel is. It's the announcement of wonderful news. Now, a few weeks ago when we were covering Mark 1.1, 1, 1, um, we gave this picture of, of gospel, of good news. And we talked about how in the first century, the, the, that word gospel was used to describe several different things. It was used to describe like historical events that changed the shape and the fabric of the world, right? So it's used to describe those sort of, of events. And, and we used uh, this idea of a military context. One of the ways it was often used in the first century was in terms of military things. And so we used this picture of, can you imagine a city that's being invaded by a foreign army? And so they've sent all of their able-bodied men out of the city to go fight this war. And if you're left in the city, here's what you know. If your army, your, your able-bodied men, if they lose this fight, if they lose this battle, you are doomed. You're going to be killed. Your sons and daughters are going to be killed. There is no hope left for you if they lose. Now picture the scene where they have been sent out. This is before Twitter and Facebook. You haven't heard for weeks as to what's going on. Have they won? Have they lost? And all of a sudden you see a messenger on the horizon. And he is running back to the city. Now I want you to think about the two things he could bring in this moment. Thing number one is he could bring good advice to the city. Here's what good advice sounds like. Our army has lost. So now this is what we need to do. Archers, you get over there. Infantry, you get over there. Let's fight for our lives. That's good advice. Now here's the other thing he could bring to the city. Great news. He could gather the city around himself and he could pronounce in the hearing of the entire city, our army has won. We're safe. We're going to live. That's good news. Do you see the difference See, the gospel is not good advice on how you reach up to God. The gospel is not good advice on how you fight for your life. The gospel is good news about what has been done for you. And can I just tell you this? Good news changes lives. It changes lives. So, and, and one of the ways we've classically kind of illustrated this around here is think about a PO, like a camp of, of prisoners, POWs. That there are Americans who have been captured by a foreign army. They're behind razor wire. They've got guards that would just as soon kill them as look at them, making their life absolute misery. 
So you've got these prisoners of war, and, and they're walking around behind this razor wire. They're, they're gaunt. Their rib cages are poking out of their skin. They're starving to death. Some are even dying each day. And all of a sudden, this damaged radio that they've been working on for months comes to life. And they hear across the radio waves, American forces are within miles of their camp. Now, I want you to picture if you're the guard, and you look back about this time, and you see an amazing sight. You, you, all of a sudden, these prisoners who have been moping around, starving, gaunt, all of that, they, they are now up on their feet. They're shouting, they're dancing, arms are raised, they're, they're banging on pots and pans. Like in one sense, nothing in the camp has changed. They're still starving. Some are still dying. They're gaunt. They're all of that. But in another sense, everything in the camp has changed, hasn't it? See, that's the difference good news makes for people. And this is not just any gospel. It's not just a gospel. It's not just a set of good news. It is the gospel, like the good news, the best of news, that, that we have got a problem with God. And Jesus has gone onto the battlefield with Satan, sin, and death, foes that you could never defeat on your own. And he has emerged victoriously on your behalf. He has gotten the victory on your behalf. Right? It's not advice on how you have to reach up to God. It's not advice on how you go to the battlefield and you fight for your life. It's great news about what God has done for you in Jesus. The, the, your battle is won. You can actually live. You're not going to die. It, it's that great news. That is the gospel. Now, here is the tragedy among our culture, is that somehow the wonderful news of the gospel has been traded for a cheap and worthless substitute called religion. This is the tragedy. That if you just survey the vast amount of churches, Christian churches, they're going to be preaching and proclaiming messages this morning. It is much more good advice on what you need to do than great news about what has been done for you. I like how one guy says it. He says, the church, by and large, has drugged itself into thinking that proper human behavior, what we have to do, is the key to its relationship with God. It's good advice. That is not good news. Like, like religion is this posture of the heart that says, for, for me to be able to relate to God, I've got to meet like these standards. I've got to do these things. I've got to clean myself up to this point. And listen, I, I want to be really careful here because my aim is never to push down any other churches. So, so if that's what you're hearing, that's not my intention. What I really want to do is try to lift up Jesus. And sometimes the only way you can do that is by exposing what's happening among churches. Right? And, and so I, I think if you were just to go survey the vast amount of sermons this morning that are going to be preached from, from pulpits. If you look at the driving theme of what makes up the sermon, it's something like this. 
There are good things that we can do and there are bad things we can do. There is a good list of things and there is a bad list of things. And if we're going to make God pleased with us, we need to make sure we're on the good list. And if we're on the bad list, God is not going to be pleased with us. So, so here's the job as a Christian. is to make sure you're doing the things on the good list. You've got to avoid this list and make sure you're on this list. See, see what's coming out of most sermons, most preaching, is religion. It's do this and now God will be okay with you. Rather than gospel, that God is okay with you, he is pleased with you, not because of the things you do or don't do, but because of what Jesus has done. See, that's gospel. See, in in Christian churches, there's a lot of sermons that aren't Christian. Like they could be preached in a mosque, they could be preached in a Mormon church. See, like what makes a sermon a Christian sermon is by announcing to the world what Jesus has done, not what you have to do. That's what makes it a Christian sermon. Now listen, this is not just a church thing though. This is the people thing. This is a cultural thing. It's like one of the fears that I have anytime we start talking religion versus gospel is there's like this natural assumption that we would carry into that, thinking, well, I, I, that's the, the other people have the religious lens. That's not me. Like, it, it, that's for, I'm glad my neighbor is here this morning because this is really going to be for them, right? <laughs> and, and I'm just saying this, you need to be very careful of that. You need to be real careful of that. Um, I, I think Martin Luther, the great reformer, he had a really interesting insight just on the human heart when he said the default mode of the human heart is works-based righteousness. That we would view God in terms of what do we need to do to measure up, to qualify, That's the default mode of the human heart. He goes on to say this. This will be on the screen for you. There is not one in a thousand who does not set his confidence upon his works, expecting by them to win God's favor and anticipate his grace. There's not one in a thousand who that doesn't apply to. There's not one in a thousand. Listen, that's us in the room. There's not one in a thousand of us, he's saying, who would actually view how we're relating to God based on Jesus' performance for us. He's saying that that 999 out of those thousand, we, we are viewing our relationship to God, how we approach God through our performance for God. Listen to what Jerry Bridges says about this. It'll be on the screen for you as well. He says, my observation of Christendom is that most of us tend to base our personal relationship with God on our performance instead of upon his grace. So if we have performed well, whatever well is in our opinion, then we expect God to bless us. If we haven't done so well, our expectations are reduced accordingly. In this sense, we live by works rather than by grace. We are saved by grace, but we are living by the sweat of our own performance. We give lip service to the attitude of the Apostle Paul, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. But our unspoken motto is this, God helps those who help themselves. That this is the unspoken motto of 999 out of 1,000 of us. 
that we're relating to God based on our performance for God. Now, I want you to think about the result of what that produces. And I know this result because I've lived in it for most of my life. That, that, that here, here's what it produces, this devastating cycle of being halfway depressed because of our performance and then being really prideful because of our performance. And so when we're doing poorly, when we're, when we're on the bad list, right? When, when we're looking at the two lists and knowing, man, the last month has been characterized by a lot of that, the bad list. When we see our life and, and, and we're relating to God based on our performance and we're seeing that our performance is not measuring up, then we get really depressed. We get really self-loathing. We're down in the dust. We're down in the dumps. But then when we actually look at the last month and think, well, man, that's looking pretty good. There's a lot of good list over the last month. Then we get real self-exalting and prideful, beating our chest as if we're the model of what it looks like to be a Christian. Not knowing that we're actually anti-Christian in that moment, right? See, th this is the cycle. We go from depressed and down in the dumps, just down in the dust, to very self-exalting and arrogant. This, this is the cycle that I've lived in forever, right? This is what happens when we're basing how we approach God on our performance for God. The tragedy is that somewhere along the way, most of us have an awareness that we are saved by grace but the default mode of our heart kicks back in and we start to relate to God based on our performance. That somewhere along the way, we turn the good news of the gospel into good advice on what we have to do for God. Listen, the essence of Christianity, the essence of it, is that God welcomes you, that God relates to you, that God loves you, that God accepts you, that God has justified you, that God has pronounced over you, my son or daughter in whom I am well pleased, not based on your performance for God, but on Jesus' performance for you. That is the essence of Christianity. It's what sets it apart from every other system of belief. Now this gets us into our text here. So Matthew, or Mark chapter 1, verse 14, this is Jesus' first sermon. First sermon. So commentators are really quickly to pick up on this and, uh, and just to, to make sure that we're aware of the importance of that. That this first sermon is very important. It contains the sum and substance of Jesus' preaching. So we've got a first sermon being pronounced here, and the content of this is massively important. And here is the content, the sum and substance of Jesus' message contained in this one and, and his first sermon. Mark chapter 1 verse 14 says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming, here it is, the gospel, the good news of God. Verse 15, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now I just want you to notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say, hey, I've just arrived on the scene and I've got 
um, a, a new thing that I'm ushering in here. We've got a new thing that's happening. And here's what you need to do. Here's the new set of qualifications. Here's the new to-do list. You need to get your life right and then God's going to be happy with you. You need to make sure you're on the good list and we're all going to be good. That's not what he says. He doesn't offer any advice in this sermon. He offers great news in this sermon. He is preaching gospel, good news, not advice. And this is the first line of his gospel sermon. Verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now the kingdom of God is a really rich biblical theme that over the course of preaching through the gospel of Mark, we're going to be untying and working in for a lot of the, the sermons. So it's a really rich theme. I'm just scratching the surface of the theme today. In general terms, when you're thinking the kingdom of God, it is where God is. It is where God is reigning and ruling. Maybe you could think of it this way. The kingdom of God is where the king is. It's where his subjects are saved. It is where his subjects are flourishing, experiencing all that life is to be and all that God created life to be. It is where his enemies are scattered. This is the kingdom of God. Now, now to kind of start just scratching into this and digging into this, let me just give you some of the Old Testament background that helps us see and interpret the first line of this sermon a little better. So here would be some background for us. Genesis 1 and 2 is where we would start. This is where we see the kingdom of God and what it's meant to be. Genesis 1 and 2. So if you remember Genesis 1 and 2, we've got God creating man. And putting man in the middle of a garden, in the middle of paradise. Telling him to work that garden and to keep it. Worship and obey me. And, and here's, here's what we have. The, the Hebrew people had a word to describe life in the garden. Life as God meant it to be. It's this word shalom. That everything is operating as it should be. This is life in the kingdom of God. This is life in Genesis 1 and 2. So you have spiritual harmony. That everything is the way it is supposed to be between man and God. You have psychological harmony. Everything is the way it's supposed to be with man and himself. You have relational harmony. Everything is the way it is supposed to be between man and man. Between, between human beings. So do you remember the picture in, in Genesis where you've got Adam and Eve in the garden and it says they were naked and unashamed? They could be them with no fear. See, everything is as it should be. And everything is as it should be between man and the creation. That There's physical harmony. So man is absolutely in tune with nature and God's created order. This is life in the kingdom of God. Now can you imagine what that would feel like? To not have any relational strife in your life? To not have any sort of sin that's just permeating the way that, that life plays out. To not have any sort of a threat as, as to what other people are going to do or not do. I mean, can you imagine this is life in the kingdom of God. And then we've got Genesis 3, the most catastrophic event, single event in the Bible. Where our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided they didn't want to live under the kingship of God. Rather than living under God the king, they wanted to set up their own kingship. So when they ate that first fruit in Genesis chapter 3, here's, here's the expression of what happened there. They were trying to dethrone God and set up their own personal kingdom. They were trying to be God. They were trying to be the ones in control. Rather than submitting to God, they wanted God to submit to them. 
See, this is what sin is. See, every time you sin, this is what's happening in you and I too. We're saying, God, we are not going to submit to your kingship. You're going to be our servant, not us being your servant. See, that is what sin is at its essence. It's a failure to live under God the king, his good rule for our life. And then throughout the Old Testament, we have these descriptions of what God the king is like. And let me give you the most famous in the, in the whole of the Old Testament that describes this God who is also king. It's Exodus 32, verse 6 and 7. This is when Moses is having God pass before him. And this is what we learn about God in Exodus. Here's what it says. Actually, it's Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Here's what we learn about God. It should be up on the screen for you. It says this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. This is who God is. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Maybe we could say it this way, that that God is gracious that what, what God is disclosing about himself is this is who I am. This is my nature. I am merciful. I am abounding in love and faithfulness. Like maybe you could think of it this way. You don't have to provoke God to be merciful. It's just who God is. This is the, this is the substance of God here, the essence of God. So, so God is gracious. We learn that about God. But we also learn something else. Look at verse 7 and how it ends. You see the word but there? But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here's what we also learn, that God is just. That, that we have a God who is not just gracious. This God is also fully just. That that when God is provoked by sin, justice is demanded. That he doesn't just, because God is perfectly holy, he cannot just allow sin to be scraped under the rug as if it doesn't exist. That that God is perfectly just. So, okay, think of it this way, because God is perfectly holy. He wants us to be perfectly clear that all sin demands payment. That God cannot let sin go Without punishment. God cannot go, let sin go and just kind of scrape it under the rug as if it doesn't exist. That because God is holy, we need to be perfectly clear that punishment is coming for sin. That God is just. That there is going to be a moment where the fury and wrath of God is unleashed on sin. This is what he's showing us here. That God is both of those two things. Okay, now let's go back to Mark 1. And this fills in our reading. When we see Jesus say the time is, you know, the, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, that this helps us see all that God's saying here. I, if you could just imagine yourself in, in first century time hearing this, this is at the same time both the greatest news you have ever heard and the most terrifying news you have ever heard. It's the greatest news you have ever heard because he's saying this, the king is back. And when the king comes, he is going to reestablish his kingdom. In other words, Genesis 1 and 2, it is coming back. Shalom is is about to be restarted. 
He is working back. He is beginning the process of restoring all that was lost in Genesis 3. That is great news, isn't it? And when we see the full picture of the New Testament, when the new heavens and the new earth are coming down, and we get this description of no more tears and no more suffering, God with his people dwelling again among them, that is the picture of shalom being recreated. And, and Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand. The first shot of the kingdom, the flare is being sent up. And, and you see the kingdom of God being, like, beginning as we read forward in Mark. You've got people being healed, demons being cast out. Those are all warning shots of the coming kingdom. So it is great news in that regard. But at the same time, it is the most terrifying news you could ever hope to hear. Because here, here's the problem. It's not just a king who is coming back to usher in his kingdom. It is a king coming back who has a grudge with people who have who've basically committed treason against him. People who have rebelled against him. People who have tried to kick him out of his rightful spot as king and be the king in his place. So it's not just God coming back and, and ushering in shalom. It is God coming back with justice and vengeance and wrath to a people who have committed treason against him. So now when we read the kingdom of God is at hand, here is what we should be expecting to follow. Oh my gosh, we're dead. That's what should follow it. But listen to what Jesus says. It's not you're dead. Brace up for the wrath and fury of God. Here's what he says. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying, yes, there is full wrath and there is full fury for sin coming. God is not, God the King is not going to scrape that under the rug. Yes, you're on the bad list. Yes, you have, you've committed treason against God. Yes, you deserve the wrath of God. Yes, the wages of sin is death. Yes, you deserve hell. But yes, there is a gospel. There is good news to be announced. Yes, you deserve the wrath. You deserve the punishment. But Jesus is saying, I'm announcing to you great news. I will take the punishment for you. This is gospel. This is what he's announcing here. If you want to see a clear picture of that, it's in Romans 5. It'll be up on the screen for you. Romans 5. Here's what Romans 5, starting in verse 6, says. For while we were still weak, at the right time, that's similar words, the time is fulfilled. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare e even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. You know what that means? You did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to earn it. Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your sin. You could do nothing to please God. You could do nothing to make God act for you. You're the recipient of undeserved grace is what he's saying. But while God shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Didn't earn it. Didn't deserve it. Christ died for us. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Justified. This is a huge word. 
It's, it's a huge gospel word. It, it's telling us how God now relates to us because of Jesus. You know, there, there's one way that I've heard people teach it where they'll say something like this. Justified means that in the sight of God and because of Jesus, it's just as if we had never sinned. And that is true, but there's more to the picture. It's not just as if God wipes our slate clean because of the work of Jesus. It's not just God viewing us as if we had never sinned. It's God viewing us as if we had always obeyed just like Jesus has always obeyed. Are you seeing that? It's not just God looking at you thinking, well, at least they haven't done something wrong. It's God looking at you and saying this, I see them just like I see Jesus. When I look at them, I am seeing the perfect obedience of Jesus credited to them. That's how I look at them. He's saying that now you have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him, by Jesus. And the question is, saved from what? What are we saved from? From the wrath of God. Are you seeing that? That the king has come and he is saying this, I've got a grudge with people who have, cre- who have committed treason against me. But the good news of the gospel is that we have been saved from the wrath of God because of the person and work of Jesus. Not because of things you do or don't do. Not because of your performance. Not because you being on the bad list, the good list. Because you being behind Jesus. Because of the perfect record of Jesus being credited to you. That the gospel is Jesus going on to the battlefield of Satan's sin and death. This foe that you could never defeat. And him drinking the complete wrath of God for you. All the punishment your sin deserves being poured out on Jesus. And all the fatherly affection that Jesus deserved being poured out on you. That is gospel. Good news. And that good news sets Christianity apart from every other way of approaching God. Do you know that? It is completely unique among every other way of approaching God. Every other way of approaching God as its essence has this behind it. You work hard enough, you do well enough, you meet enough of the qualifications, and maybe you can be right with God. And Christianity is saying this, the gospel is saying this, You know how you're made right with God? Because of a perfect Jesus who lived and died for you. All other religions say, if you are bad and don't follow the rules, God will punish you. Christianity says, you were bad and you broke all the rules. But Jesus was perfect and took your punishment for you. Religion says, if you want a relationship with God, you have to fulfill all the qualifications. Christianity says, if you, you can have a relationship with God because Jesus perfectly fulfilled every single qualification for you. Religion says, if you want to please God, this is what you have to do. Here's the good list. Christianity says God is pleased with you because of what Jesus has already done for you. Religion says you, if you follow all the rules, you might be able to earn your way back to God. 
You might be able to do it. Christianity says the way back to God has already been earned for you in Jesus. Religion says I've been good, so now I'm entitled to the blessing of God. Christianity says Jesus has been good and secured for you the blessing of God. Religion says, I obey so I am accepted. Gospel, Christianity says, I am accepted. Now out of that, I can obey. I mean, we see in the difference. This is like massive difference in the way we approach God. One says, I've got to do this and maybe I can approach him. Gospel is announcing that we can approach God boldly and confidently because of what Jesus has done for us. So here's really the question of the morning. The question of the morning is, how are you approaching God? That's the question. Is it through a religious lens, this default mode of our heart? Or has our heart been recalibrated around the good news of the gospel? Now, I want to offer you nine different questions or kind of statements that I hope will help you see that. To press this down on a personal level, nine statements you can just use to lay over your life to ask the question, is the, am I like reverting to that default mode? Am I approaching God through my performance? Or am I approaching God through the perfect performance of Jesus for me? Nine statements here. You can just apply this and kind of press this down over your life. Religious-centered people. My performance gains me standing with God. Religious-centered people. Here's what's true of their life. There's a lot of guilt over sin. So, I mean, we just kick ourselves and kick ourselves over all of our past sin, over all of our present sin, over our bad decisions, over the mess we've made. We continually and fervently and consistently beat ourselves to death with it. A gospel-centered person. Here's what they experience. Their sorrow over sin. So, so there is an awareness that I have offended a perfect God. But that sorrow is soon replaced by a profound sense of gratitude. Knowing that Jesus has paid for every sin, past, present, and future that I will ever commit. So ask yourself. Is, is, is my, when I respond to sin, is it, is it more of this guilt-laden, beating myself up, or, or does my response to sin soon turn into gratitude for the person and work of Jesus? Number two. Religious-centered people, when they sin, they run from God. So, so think about the, the mindset. See, when it's based on our performance, when, when we don't perform well, the last thing we want to do is to run to God with our bad performance. The last thing we want to do is to run to God in the midst of our sin. He's going to kill us for it, right? Why would we go to God in the midst of that? So religious-centered people, they run to God when they sin. Gospel-centered people, they run to God when they sin. Gospel-centered people, it's where else would I go? This is the one who has paid for my sin finally and fully and completely. 
Religious-centered people know that God's not going to kill them for their sin because he's already killed Jesus for their sin. That makes God approachable, doesn't it? Even in the midst of our messes, it makes God approachable. Do you remember the view of the prodigal son when he comes back home? He doesn't find the father on the doorstep making him crawl back up the steps. No, we've got a father who runs to meet him from a long way off, don't we? See, that's the picture of gospel. Religious-centered people feel like this, that Christianity is a burden. So it is all duty and no delight. It is all burden. Service feels like a chore, right? I mean, we're doing the right thing, but it is all burden. There is no joy to be found in it. That's religious-centered people. Gospel-centered people, they feel like Christianity— in Christianity, there, there is this profound sense of freedom. There is duty that meets delight, that meets desire. There is a joy for God in the midst of that. Now, I was just reminded, I just want to read this up to you, of, of Matthew 11 this week. I think Kevin actually read this last week in the middle of the worship set. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29. This is the feel of what it, when, you, when our heart is soaked in gospel, This is what it feels like. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a gospel-centered heart. They're feeling rest. Take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? Verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, does that feel like Christianity to you? My yoke is easy and my burden is is light. Is there joy that is motivating and desire that is motivating the duty? Number four. Religious-centered people pray when they need something from God, right? So we pray when, like, we have run out of all other options, When no other options exist, then we're down on our knees before God praying for a miracle of God, right? This is religious-centered people. We pray because we need God to come through like right now. Gospel-centered people, they pray because they want to be with God. Not primarily because they need something from God. That there is delight in being with the God who sent his son to be slaughtered for our sin. That there is delight in the presence of that God. Number five, religious-centered people struggle with forgiveness. See, do you know why you struggle with forgiveness and why I struggle with forgiveness sometimes? It's because the default mode of my heart is to be religiously centered. It's It's because I am not acquainting my heart with the amazing grace of God for me. And when I lose sight of God's amazing grace for me that canceled my debt, it makes me want to hold a million small debts, a million small little grudges against other people. See, it's the religiously centered that can't forgive. Gospel-centered people, their forgiveness is full and free. See, it's not just like an intellectual knowledge of, yeah, I've been forgiven by God. Gospel-centered people, like, that is dropped in their heart 
They have been, like something has been recalibrated around it. It has shaken them to the core where they have realized, I was in a massive debt for God and he has canceled the debt for me. Number six, religiously centered people, they feel like they're better than others. So here's what we'll say when religiously centeredness, when that whole thing kind of comes upon us. What's wrong with them? I mean, when are they going to grow up? Right? I mean, this is the posture of ourself toward other people. It is the classic Matthew 7. We can see the speck in other people, but we miss the log in our own eye. Gospel-centered people realize and feel like they are equal with others. That like there is... You know, when we look around, it's really easy to say, well, this guy's a little bit better than that guy, and that guy's a little bit better than this guy. But when we're comparing ourselves to the perfect standard of God that was met in Jesus, we all look really bad, don't we? We all look much more alike than different. There is a deep awareness we, when we look in the mirror of the problems that we have. Number seven, religiously centered people, they can't stand criticism. See, when we're religiously centered, our whole standing in life is based on others perceiving us and us perceiving us as a good person. So when somebody threatens our standard and our kind of reputation as a good person, all heck breaks loose. We'll protect that at all cost, right? This is what happens when we are religiously centered. But when we are gospel-centered, although we don't like criticism, that's never fun, we can easily stand under it and stand in it. Why? Because our standing is not based on our performance. We have a deep awareness that we are deeply flawed. And we invite people to help us see more accurately where we're deeply flawed. See, as a, as a gospel-centered person, we can freely invite people into that. But when we can't do that, it's giving us an awareness that we are not seeing our life through the gospel, but through religion, through how our performance you know, creates in us an ability to relate to God. Number eight, two more of these. Number eight, religiously centered people get angry when difficulties and suffering come into their life. They get angry, either at God or at them. So they get angry at God when they feel like they've been on the good list and they performed well enough to, to earn the blessing of God. And we get mad at ourselves when we've been on the bad list and know that we have not earned the blessing of God. But you can bank on this. We're mad about something. You just bank on that. I'll never forget a few years ago, sitting across from a lady who her family had just fallen apart. And she made this comment to me. She said, I have done everything. I have obeyed God. I've been in church. I've been giving. I've been serving. And yet God gives me this. And now listen, that hits close to home for all of us. And do you know where that comes from? A view that our standing, our, you know, our acceptance, the blessing of God is built on our performance for God. That's, that's what produces that statement and that feeling of, God, I've done all of this and yet you give me that. See, we're looking at God, approaching God through the lens of our performance. But gospel-centered people are patient and can even rejoice in suffering. 
knowing that, that Jesus has secured for us the blessing of God, that suffering is never ultimately punishment from God, that knowing that we, we are always getting from God better than we deserve, a.k.a. hell, we're always getting from God better than we deserve. Number nine, and we'll finish with this. <clears throat> for the religiously centered person, worship is lifeless. Do you know that, that religion can never ever produce worship it can't it can produce duty it can produce get your rear end up and get you to church get your bible and sit and listen it can produce that all day long but religion cannot produce worship in a human heart can't do it a gospel-centered heart worship flows through their life for a, a gospel-centered heart, a person that's living in and soaked in all that God has done for us in Jesus, worship naturally flows from that. Okay, can you picture the scene? Go back to our, our moment where we have sent out of our city our best and most abled men to fight the battle for us. They've got the invading army on the doorsteps. We have heard no news, right? I mean, our life, our, our sons and daughters, their life is all at stake. And all of a sudden, the messenger comes back in and he announces to the city, the battle has been won. You are going to live. Your sons and daughters are going to live. I don't care how introverted you think you are. I don't care how passive you think you are, how conservative you think you are. In that moment, there's going to be some shouts. In that moment, there's going to be some hands being raised up. In that moment, even for like no rhythm white people, there's going to be some people break out in a little dance. Are, are we seeing that? And, and do, you know, do you know how you can spot religion? Like a heart that is seeing God through religion as quick as anything else is with arms folded like this as we sing about the great announcement of Jesus coming to earth to pay for our sin. They just cannot, can, like worship does not flow out of them. See, when, when we are seeing and savoring all that God has done for us in Jesus, worship is produced in that heart. Man, worship flows from that heart. Hands get raised up. Man, hearts start to come out. So shouts start to happen when we start to see all that God has done for us in Jesus. And my hope for our church family is more and more and more and more we would be captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.